how do you think of just that concept of men gazing at other men? I mean, it's it's again, it's a it's a concept and an idea and a line of thinking that I it sort of came from the same spot because like I remember reading Mulvey as an undergrad and then being like, okay, that's that's great so long as you're constantly thinking of these like binary like, and also this idea like that there's a implicit heterosexuality and heteronormativity to the way that we sometimes understand and sometimes misread that that essay which is which says you know men straight men over here women straight women over here object subject yada 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 um and again i'm always i was always more interested in the the destabilizing thing that would happen when it would be men gazing at men Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash ivory tower boiler room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the ivory tower boiler room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm joined with well, I'm going to call him Dr. Manuel Betancourt because um, I know he has his PhD from Rutgers and I told him I'm from New Jersey. So I have to shout out a New Jersey institution when I see it. But, you know, now I'll just say Manuel since I feel that I'm close friends with him already. But to let you all know who I'm talking to and all of the accolades behind him. Manuel is a queer Colombian culture writer and film critic. His work has appeared in the New York Times, BuzzFeed News, the Los Angeles Times, Film Quarterly, the Los Angeles Review of Books, GQ Style, and elsewhere, um, because there's more. <laughs> Betancourt is also, Manuel, is the author of Judy Garland's Judy at Carnegie Hall, which might have a surprise question about that for him, and a contributing writer to the Eisner Award-nominated graphic novel series, The Cardboard Kingdom. And I think you're still doing, are you still doing Larry Mantle's show called Film Week? Okay. Yeah, yeah. there's a really cool um, radio podcast type show online called Film Week that Manuel gives his film uh, critiques and reviews and we'll dig in all into what you see on the horizon right now for mm -hmm. us to you know lock into but yeah Manuel without further ado thank you so much for joining the ivory tower boiler room no thank you thank you so much and yeah it's funny because I I don't think I've ever introduced myself as Dr. Manuel Bencourt even though I should and I, I do have a PhD but I sometimes for the longest time my bio used to read uh, Manuel has a PhD, but doesn't like to talk about it, um, <laughs> which then my advisor called me out on went like years later. And she was like, I keep reading this in your bio. And she's like, why do you keep hiding from your academic path? So 
I eventually nixed that part of the bio and put it very like the last line. I think in my bio in my website now says like he holds a PhD in English literatures from Rutgers University because I should be proud of that. And I spent enough time earning that degree um, to hide from it anymore. Well, and what did you actually what was your dissertation on at Rutgers? So the dissertation. Oh, my God. Can I remember the full title? No. Something like being in the picture. the The central thesis of the uh, of the dissertation was looking at the way uh, movie fandom had influenced queer literary form uh, in the early twentieth century. So basically, looking at the first generation of queer writers who grew up with the movies. Um, so uh, my chapters were on Tennessee Williams, Gore Vidal, John Ritchie, um, and Manuel Puig, and then the intro sort of did. A roundabout and ended with Pedro Almodovar. So for those who've read The Male Gaze, there's a lot of, um, I've disemboweled bits and pieces of the dissertation um, in writing this. But well, that was sort was, of my, yeah. Yeah, curious about is how did it end up into The Male Gaze? But well, and for everyone out there, um, Manuel, Manuel, um, say his last name again. Um, oh, Puig, yeah. Puig, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, to say, not you. I was like, not me. Not you. No, no, no. We know who <laughs> the you other are. Manuel. <laughs> um, but yeah, P-U-I-G. He yeah. wrote The Kiss of the Spider Woman, which then yes. I know now as the iconic Cheetah Rivera Broadway musical. As we um, should. Yes. And Vanessa Williams. She did the yes. revival. Um, or yeah. Oh, no. Did the tour. The tour, not the revival. I think there should be a revival, but that's I my I think own. we're overdue, yeah. I think we're due for it, yeah. Uh, so... That's so interesting. And Pedro Almodovar, he had done which films are some that we would all know that he directed? So he's probably best known right now, or not right now, forever, for his Oscar-winning films, All About My Mother, which he won the Best Foreign Language Film back in 99, and then Talk to Her, which won him Best Original Screenplay in 2002, I want to say. Uh, but his big mainstream breakout success was in 1988 with Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Um, oh, yes. And then he's been doing a lot of these films with Penelope Cruz lately. So if you watch stuff like Volver or most recently he did Pain and Glory with Antonio Banderas uh, and Parallel Mothers with uh, Penelope. So he's been working for a long time and he's my favorite filmmaker of all time. But it's so interesting how queer film fandom, but that was your dissertation. And I'm assuming it was about narratives. Like there might have been, was there more of that academic technical look compared to now what we have in front of us with the male gaze is more of the memoir meets the academics the memoir meets the analyst i'll say it yeah that way. yeah and i yeah absolutely like the dissertation was very much um i'm a big close reader i love form i love writing about form i love thinking about form so it was very interested in sort of the kinds of um, you know, Vidal's writing and his prose and Williams' stage directions. And it was very much uh, sort of, it was very academic, uh, very queer theory informed. Um, but, you know, in, in grad school with my friends, we always used to joke that any dissertation was a biography. It was an autobiography, um, whether it was in terms of, like it says a lot about you, what you choose to spend, you know, eight, nine, however many years on the dissertation. And for me, it was very obvious. <laughs> like I was writing a book, I was writing a dissertation about the way um, cinema shapes us and shapes our thinking. Mm -hmm. And so the pivot to actually, I never intended to pivot to write a memoir. The way that I initially pitched 
The Male Gaze was kind of like a cultural criticism book of essays. Um, and it was only through the work that I did with my agent and the work that we then did, did with my um, editor at Catapult that they were like, I think the thing that ties this together and I think the way that this project is going to be stronger and is going to be more of a, find more of a readership is if you're taking us through this journey so that, it, that the memoir bits were sort of, we slowly grew them. So I keep referring myself as a begrudging memoirist because um, I never intended to write. I still bristle when I think of this as a memoir because I I don't think that's like the, the the spine or the structure of even like the, or even the, armature of the of the project to me it's about thinking about masculinity in pop culture and my and the sort of anecdotal asides and the biographical uh, moments are sort of uh windows that sort of allow us to sort of zoom in and then go out into these like larger pieces um yeah well and just for everyone out there uh Manuel is really digging into his current book, The Male Gazed, on hunks, heartthrobs, and what pop culture taught me about parentheses, desiring, and parentheses, men. So desiring <laughs> is even in parentheses, which I think actually shows me a lot about your personality. And, you know, tell me if I'm digging in too much psychoanalytically, but you seem like a very introspective, almost shy, like, in terms of social media, because like everyone who sees me, I'm a very exuberant, outward <laughs> person, even when it comes to my speedos or just how I consume culture and how I consume male homoerotics, even in my dissertation, that it's very phallic centered and body centered, sex centered, <laughs> like on the verge of porn studies, where it seems like you're almost on the edge of that, like you're kind of voyeuristically like you're looking at the scene but you're not necessarily wanting to throw yourself into the center of the party well i mean yes and no i mean i i do love the parentheses and i think like the parentheses is the the, the one bit of the title that suggests i'm an academic mm -hmm. <laughs> that i think like tips you off because it, it's in a way like it's the most academic version of the title that i could imagine with the parentheses like what does it mean about men but also desiring men i love sort of wordplay um, I've also been constantly called out for my writing about using a lot of asides and using a lot of parentheticals and parenthetical commas. Like it's, I hadn't realized how much of a stylistic tick that was for me, but I do enjoy, yeah, it is sort of like looking aside and being sort of uh, a little bit in the background. Um, I think some people would appreciate the description of me as a kind of wallflower and voyeur. And then um, other friends of mine might uh, think that's a mischaracterization. <laughs> Because I think over the years, what I've actually chosen to do is like, I've taken a step back on social media. Like I used to be a lot more active and a lot more sort of front and center. And I think I've shifted that to be more in real life. Sort of like, I I think you you will find me at Black's Beach or Laguna and in my Speedos and taking pictures and like having that. And I've been a little bit uh, wary of having that be the social media sort of persona, but so I'm sort of straddling the two because I do think that it's my work is very much about voyeurism. It's about desire and desire in this kind of psychoanalytic way. Um, and the book is the thing that actually pushed me to that it needed to be at the center. And I I'm very uncomfortable by it, but I find the discomfort um, intellectually productive. 
um because then I get because I'm crippled by <laughs> anxiety and by this because the self-consciousness and self-awareness so it's like oh I'm really uncomfortable what does it say about me what does it say about him what does it say about this structure what does it say about the context what does it say about and then this is exactly what fuels every single chapter in the book. Like I'm constantly sort of thinking and overthinking and sort of trying to change uh, situationally. Like, what does that mean? And what does it mean for me about this movie, about the character and about what am I, it's very exhausting sometimes being in my brain, but I think a lot of academics can, can relate. Well, you see how I played that as a reality TV producer. Um, <laughs> I always say I'm very good at intuitively picking up on, what people are getting at it artistically, but not necessarily questioning them outwardly, like trying to really <laughs> get into the gossip or the meat of uh, the substance. But no, thank you. That really does make sense. And even when I've been so enjoying your book in the sun and like, I keep recommending it as a beach read, but even when it gets to the winter, it's a great bubble bath <laughs> read, a great comfort read with soup, whatever. <laughs> floats your boat here um on a cruise ship literally on a boat yes. yes but you have this moment that i really love i mean i know with matt Baum, i'll shout shout him out because he was on the podcast he talked a lot about your disney pr uh, princess fascination but i wanted to start first since he had really dug into you with that more on what you do with athleticism and especially mm -hmm. what you do with the male wrestler, because this has become a huge fad on TikTok right now of the male wrestler singlet videos. Like there's actually an account dedicated to the male singlet um, of just seeing their bulges. And it's so interesting how it gets around the algorithm of TikTok, because TikTok, <laughs> from what I know with posting videos, they'll tag you if there's even a butt in the photo of a man, not a woman, but if it's a male butt um they will flag it so context is but it's a sport and it's the only it's one of those moments where like you're allowed to ogle at swimmers and at wrestlers and at rugby players um so it's sort of hard for the algorithm to sort of notice how it is that you're looking at the content when the content itself seems to be family friendly and it would be family friendly because fam families go to uh wrestling meets and <laughs> like the men are open to consumption in that very safe kind of context well and i wondered if because you talk a lot about how you were coming to know different aspects of male homoeroticism but male same-sex desire through athletics but i was curious did this also extend into um what you were viewing later in years like do you look now at films about athletic culture or even I'm thinking there's now so much about coming out narratives mm -hmm. that center around the jock. And it's not a huge deal that he's a jock. Like he's going to be the trailblazer. And then we've seen Robbie Rogers coming out in the sports soccer world. Um, that And then who's that swimmer? Um, Tom Daly. Daly. Tom Daly. Yeah. I was going to say the one who knits <laughs> in between his diving, but that is his claim to fame here. Um, but yeah. So how do you consume that now? Like, do you see this pattern of reflecting back with athletics? Yeah. I mean, it was sort of, um, again, I think to, to, to my, my point of what I recognized was like, oh, athletics in sports is one of the few socially sanctioned spaces where we're allowed to look at male bodies and really look at them and like analyzing them and analyzing what they're doing and really tying what they look like to what they do, right? So 
when we talk about a swimmer's build, we're talking about a specific kind of look, but it's a specific kind of look that's designed to be more agile or to be, or to get like, uh, right? Like think of Michael Phelps and his span, his wingspan and sort of like the idea that the body, so long as we see it as instrumental, um, then it's something that we can analyze. Um, but of course, us gay boys are not just analyzing for that or for how far they can jump or how far they can run or how fast they can run, uh, but we're looking for other things. And especially in the way that athletic gear um, again, because it's under the guise of keeping, uh, supporting you or making you more agile or right, like the wrestling is, was literally designed because it's, I think it's the only way that you can cover the main bits that you're not supposed to see. Right. So the nipples and, um, the genitals and the ass and sort of that's at, at an elemental level, the wrestling is the wrestling singlet is sort of the most prudish thing that a man could wear, but it's also most revealing. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower boiler room. And so I've always loved those moments when society sort of opens a back door to use a pun um, and to let us sort of gaze at those things. I, I, it's funny because I don't watch a lot of sports, but I do come across a lot of those uh, social media accounts that you're uh, talking about. Like one, of, I talk about one of them in the, in the book, this uh, Portis Wasp who does these sort of like montages of just wrestlers. And they're very, again, if you're, a wrestling enthusiast, all you're looking at are wrestlers. They're wrestlers who are like handshaking with their coaches or they're like walking away from the mat. But if you're a gay man, and as soon as you put that frame around it, what you're noticing are those bulges and those asses and 
this like when they're being pinned, like it's a very sexual kind of thing, but only because of the way that I'm looking at. Because the boys are just trying to win their meat and they're trying to win their thing. Um, so that's where my interest in athletics begins and ends. <laughs> yeah, but it's so interesting because I had um, a philosopher join me and we talked about the beginning of athletics with male same-sex desire from ancient Greece and wrestling was like one of the first mm. sports in the Olympics of ancient Greece. It was running, wrestling, swimming, maybe javelin, uh, right. but was it was all these, but it was ones that we now think of of having more, maybe not the javelin, but <laughs> ones that had more revealing outfits, right? Swimming, right. Um, but then they were in the nude, uh, right. which brought on, I'm sure, there's definitely queer men who do sports in the nude now. Um, but in the mainstream culture, I'm thinking of football. Like that's one where I feel the outfit just speaks to my desire, but that the jock strap, mm -hmm. you know, is in certain sports, but isn't necessarily common in the gym, even though I'm trying to bring it back. Uh, I'm bringing like back the jock of, a strap. A lot of us are. Yes. 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 We're it's trying to and make it fashionable. Um, yeah. But do you think that there's also this correlation, though, that the most hands-on male-male sports are also the most, or culturally have been the most homophobic? Like, you know, how do you wrestle, literally, how do you wrestle that in your mind? Yeah, and I think it's, I think the other part of it is that all of those very hands-on sports also tend to be the most violent and the most aggressive. Mm. Um, and it was something about, it was actually something about my book that I didn't realize until I sort of had finished writing it. Like I sent it to a friend of mine and he was like, oh my God, you've written an entire book about aggressive men and about the allure of the aggressive men. And I was like, no, I, no, I, oh yeah, I did. I was like, oh, like going from chapter to chapter, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the threat that sort of runs through, one of the threats that runs through it is this idea of like, why is aggression and desire or aggression and seduction or aggression and eroticism so intertwined? And I think it's because those moments when we're most allowed to look at men touch and be revealing with one another, right? Like these homosocial spaces um, are founded on or are sort of armed around with a kind of homophobia, but that is alluring, right? And it's, it's I don't know that I've finished wrestling with it because I think there's, there's a lot, <laughs> it says a lot about our culture, about what we um, are taught to aspire to, are taught to desire, are taught to embody. Um, and that's why the central question of the book, like, do I want him or do I want to be him, sort of turns mm -hmm. on a dime when what I'm wanting is something that's both a threat and a seducer. Because um, I think there's this titillation and that we don't know what to do with it. Because we're supposed to find, you know, Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire, who's like pulsating with sexuality and sensuality, but he's an abuser. But Marlon Brando is beautiful. So then I'm left, Tennessee Williams lives us in this moment and Elia Kazan leaves in this moment that are like, what are we supposed to be doing with this figure? What are we supposed to be doing with this um, man? Um, and I don't- or, Yeah, that. or even Marlon Brando being interested in men. Right, exactly. And Which is another layer. Becomes a subtext of that. And again, this is also what Almodovar sort of explores in his in his filmography, like all of these very violent men who are played by Antonio Banderas, who is beautiful. And the camera like lovingly gazes at him and encourages us to lust after him, even when he's playing these like 
maniacal, murderous um, men. <laughs> yeah. And is it Ang Lee? He's the director of Brokeback Mountain, right? Yeah. So, and there's a lot of critiques about Brokeback Mountain. We're not going to get into them here, especially not when I have, you know, you joining me. Um, and we can talk more about your book. But I something about Brokeback Mountain actually I feel speaks to what you're saying because one of the most sexually explicit moments of bareback sex is violent. Like it's right. all through almost you think they're going to fist fight, but then it right. turns into a sexual moment. And that is something though where I feel how quickly violence between men can become sexual and how queer men fetishize the violence. Like you have aspects of BDSM culture or like puppy play, kink play. Yeah. Um, but I always say, right, there's that's why love and war, they're the flip side of the same coin. They can quickly transfer into that energy. But that doesn't mean there's not problematic elements like you're saying right. about Marlon Brando. Um, yeah. So thank you for all of that. I feel that it's so interesting what you do in your book, though. Like what I so admire is first the cover, which if you're watching this, you know, on Patreon, um, you know, become a Patreon member, the, my shameless plug. But <laughs> also on social media, of course, you'll see the cover, um, the male gazed, but that you have the nipple so prominently out with the body, right? I mean, I'm not sure if you know Tim Dean's Unlimited Intimacy, but it's the butt. I'm rereading right now. <laughs> oh, Funnily are enough. you? Yeah, oh, for wonderful. my next book. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. And then Tim has, you know, made a splash on the podcast here. So I feel Unlimited Intimacy is now on everyone's mind. But there's so many books with um, the butt. Um, and that that's that signal of desire between men, mm. queer men. But we don't talk a lot about nipples and how men, all men, that you know, the breast is always displayed in the summer when someone goes for a run and it's hot out that you can just, you know, free the male nipple and there's not questions, <laughs> right? unlike women and all of these different ethical questions that culture asks. And I wonder, was this intentional? Did you think, okay, I need to have the male breast exposed? Well, I will, I will give total credits for the cover to the art folks at Catapult. Um, what they did ask me ahead of time was like, if I had any book covers that I particularly enjoyed or felt that I read, like, I think I give them a mood board because <laughs> I'm that kind of person that was like, I want, I want the male body and I want the male body front and center. And I think the two that came, the three that came to mind that I gave them was one was How to Be Gay by David Halperin, who I love because um, it's a pink cover and it has um, a male nude model, but he's, you're seeing him from behind. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, politics, the form of a girl, uh, which also has a lovely pink cover and has, I think like a, a torso and the other one that I love. And again, another piece of queer art that we may not need to discuss because it has a lot of um, detractors and proselytizers is a little life by Hanya Yanagihara uh, that has the beautiful Peter Hujar photograph where you can't tell whether he's in ecstasy or in pain. Um, so I always knew that I want, so basically what I told them, I was like, I want the male body sort of front and center. And this is what they came back with. Um, and a lot of people have asked me whether that is me on the cover. And I always have to say that, unfortunately it is not, uh, but thank you for thinking that I look this uh, well sculpted. I wish I did. Um, 
But I think one you of the could things do that I the really, cover. I, I you have could, done. I will. That I would have, be fun. There are I, there are pictures on my phone where I have tried to <laughs> recreate it and have successfully. Um, maybe I should post those soon because this, this is a way of. Maybe when this uh, interview comes out, there we, there go. we go. That'll that's a nice. We'll do a collab together, Manuel. Okay, <laughs> we'll talk about it offline. Yeah. Um, but I think what they did capture, and I think what I really, because immediately as soon as they sent me, I was like, this is perfect. Like the coloring was perfect. The only thing mm -hmm. we tweaked was the font, but I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I think it's because it's again, this kind of image that beckons you without it being overtly sexual, right? So it's yeah. like this, there's a mundanity um, to it. So it's like, I could see this at a gym, but I could see this at a beach, or I could see this at a locker room. Um, but there is something about the tensed muscle, which I think was also both the combination of the nipple and the tensed muscle that gets at this idea of strength and seduction. Like you're constant, like if you're posing, which is sort of like what this is doing and echoing sort of a lot of physique pictorials that we saw in the middle and mid 20th century, um, that were very much designed and taken by gay photographers, particularly here, uh, in Los Angeles and in Venice beach. Um, when you're tensing a muscle like that, it's for someone else whether it's for you to make sure that the body is doing exactly what you want it to be doing or so that someone else will notice it. Um, but I hadn't actually thought of that, that the nipple is quite central because it is the central focus of the, yeah. of the image, but maybe it's because I'm a bicep guy and not a nipple guy. Um, but there is something for, I guess, a lot of us to sort of admire in this cover. <laughs> well, now I just like want to start flexing my bicep here. Even though yeah. I know I've been toning those. So I keep saying it's not as big of a bicep, <laughs> but um, well, it reminds me of young guy or any age when I'm at the gym and I'm sure if you're at Muscle Beach in Venice, that's what I want to visit. I want to visit Muscle Beach. I might be intimidated, but because um, I am curious, like how many, how inclusive of queer men is Muscle Beach? And I'm, I don't know. Do you have an answer for that? I don't. It's funny, like I live in Los Angeles and it's one of, it's such a Los Angeles answer because you're like, I rarely go to the beaches here. Um, because they're kind of they're not far, but they're far sort of in you know how different cities have different elasticity of time and space. So that mm -hmm. what feels really close in New York can feel really like far away in another city or in Los Angeles. I feel like the beach to me feels like so far away because it's so far um west. Oh my god, I can't do that. I can't do geography. Um, but I haven't actually visited uh, muscle beach but it used to be that there was if it wasn't queer friendly because it is sort of very masculine again in my cultural imagination but that is where a lot of these gay photographers picked up their uh, models um to do both pictorials and also pornography um i don't know how much that's changed i have to imagine well, it's just as every other place it's been a little bit gentrified and it's sort of shape shape shifted a little bit but well it's like the epicenter of um gay for pay or yeah. you know gay porn that really you think san francisco los angeles i mean there is new york but it's not as predominant but right. again i think it's because the beaches the exercise the modeling with hollywood industry i mean right. i even think they're not in porn so don't think i'm saying tom sandoval is in porn but um, <laughs> he might be in a he might be in a lot of gossip <laughs> right now um but that's not the scandal so, but even I know he was an inspiring model. And so was Tom Schwartz and like all the Vanderpump Rules cast was basically, right. they were trying to become actors. And I mean, I guess they are soap opera actors. They're, in yeah, they're in their, in their own lives. 
in their own in any reality TV, right? The Beverly Hills Housewives are soap. They're all soap opera, basically performers. And that is interesting. And I think what that brings me to is the adult business, the entertainment business is actually when you brought up the physique magazines, that's what I thought of automatically with your cover. Um, but how closely the physique magazines and that's what Thomas Wall does so brilliantly and hard to imagine is that the physique mm -hmm. magazines and the adult entertainment business with men was so closely intersected yeah. in the 1950s and 60s. And Playgirl eventually comes from really right. the physique magazine. GQ, um, right, as all of sort of straight wash it and then uh, sell it to the masses, yes. Yeah, well, except Playgirl. <laughs> That's because <laughs> there was a certain fan base who right. uh, were interested in those images. Um, and they're still bringing out Playgirl. It's still here um, just because they follow us on the Instagram and I love messaging them. So... <laughs> My question really is about explicitness in terms of mm. the male gazed, um, Manuel, is how much did you think about, because like you said, you're really looking at cultural objects that are not seen in an explicitly queer way. Like you're not looking right. at the adult entertainment business. You're not picking up um, Playgirl. You're not picking up Naked Sword movies or Falcon right. Studios. Like you're looking at Disney, you're looking at things that could be family friendly. Yeah, and, and intentionally so. Um, I think because what I wanted to look at were objects that weren't intended for a queer male audience in particular. Because I think once you start thinking about gay porn or you start thinking about, I mean, I do talk a little bit about physique pictorials and a handful of porn studios get name checked um, towards the end of, a, end of a chapter, but they're sort of uh, minor footnotes. Because I think once we start having this conversation about those objects, the audience shifts, right? And sort of the intended audience and the intended um, purpose of those images is clear and it's explicit. And instead, what I wanted to look at, because it's the kind of thing that we all have in common, is like what happens when these images, like a Disney film or like a family, you know, Saturday morning um, sitcom or, uh, you know, a Latino superstar or an astrologer who we all see, what are the kinds of messages that are being smuggled or the kinds of messages that we get to queer through these images that the person next to me may not get or may not see in the same way? So like, I'm sure mm -hmm. there's an entire generation of people who have a very different experience of Mario Lopez in Saved by the Bell than those of us who are gay, who were seeing certain things and who were being aroused in different ways. Uh, or, I mean, I keep thinking of like, I had a very different experience of Ricky Martin growing up than those who were not keying into the, what I what I often thought of as softness and tenderness, but what I was clearly keying into was his gayness, his homosexuality that he that he was sort of hiding, but he, but he couldn't suppress. He was so, there was something very wounding about him. Uh, and he wasn't sort of that muscled, heartthrob, teen, teeny bopper that he sort of eventually became. But when he was growing up and as I was growing up alongside him, I mean, he's a little bit, he's a lot, not, a lot older, but he's older than I am. Um, and so, so I have a very different parasocial relationship with him as a gay man who is also growing up in Latin America than, you know, those girls who were screaming after him when Living La Vida Loca was exploding all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to, I, I love looking at those moments where uh, the text is something and then depending on where you're at, because I think my, my, 
what I love thinking and writing about are these like site specific and cultural specific and reader specific readings. How do they happen and what do they happen and what we can learn about them? Um, there's a malleability to sort of how we read certain things and it changes over time. Like one of the joys of a book was revisiting these things and like going back to Safe by the Bell and being like, oh, as a 38 year old, I'm reading so much more, but clearly as a 14 year old, I, I was noticing those same things. And so that vantage point and the chasm between them was fascinating. And it is fascinating. I think it's where the most interesting criticism for me happens. Um, is in that kind of distancing and the kind of like triangulation of uh, where I'm at, where the text is at, and then how, what, what the difference between the intended audience and then that audience who's not them and like the ones that's me, I don't know. Well, and do you, and also it seems that your intended audience, even for who would be reading the male gaze, I don't want to say that once you bring up gay porn, you basically get rid of those who aren't interested in male male action but i will it does limit your audience or a straight audience thinks they're not going to receive um value from that conversation even though we can have a whole argument about how much straight sexuality is thrown at us and we have to dissect it and especially in literature during academia the amount mm. of books we have to read um so that aside <laughs> uh, because i would argue any kind of sexual conversation is valuable do you think though that's also an aspect of it seems like even when you bring up Gore Vidal um, or what you had worked on in your dissertation like he had been writing for a mass consumer audience mm -hmm. um, not the city and the pillar necessarily which is what I had right. presented a conference paper on so I know a lot about yeah. the different endings of the city and the pillar mm -hmm. um, but like even with him I'm not saying this is a marketing decision because I know this is the work you've been doing, but how has your audience responded? Like, do you have a demographic um, understanding? Like when people read your book, what different varied responses have you gotten, say, because of sexuality? Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that Key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Tama Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then 
head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer, and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of the sound of music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime in Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Well, I will say, I think, I, I think I never, I wrote this book for me. And I know that sounds like very sort of like trite, um, but I always intended, and I, I think it's most um, fruitful to be read by fellow queer men. And that's mostly been the kind of readership that I've encountered, both anecdotally and the people who email me and the people who write to me, um, the queer men who see or understand or felt connected to bits and pieces. But for example, I'll give you another thing because one of the things that I really struggled and it was something that I worked on really hard was how not to make the fact that I grew up in Colombia and the mm. fact that I use Spanish and Spanish is my first language that I didn't want to always imagine a reader who didn't speak Spanish. So one of the things that I do constantly and intentionally throughout the book is I never translate. Like I have Spanish sentences that I leave untranslated. It's not mm -hmm. that I give you the Spanish and then I give you the English language translation. The way that I, and I worked really hard at this, was like I would give you the Spanish and then in the context of the, the next following sentences, I would explain what I'd said or where the character had said or the lyric um, 
I never wanted that to be an interruption of the rhythm of the book. Um, Cause I never wanted to, cause I feel as a Spanish reader, when I read that, when I'm reading a novel and someone gives me an English, a Spanish language sentence, and then immediately gives me an English language translation, it tells me, oh, they didn't have me in mind. They had someone who doesn't speak Spanish in mind. Mm. Um, so that was one of the few moments where I was intentionally trying to move away from what we normally think of as our intended reader, which is an English speaking, English language um, sort of audience. Um, but in a way, I do think that a lot of the shorthand that I use uh, has resonance with queer men. Um, and it's the kind, and it's just, that's sort of how I, that's the world I move in. So whenever I've encountered um, folks who don't fall under that demographic and who still found something worthy, I'm mostly just shocked and very impressed at them because I'm like, oh, you've read an entire book that has nothing to, like that is like do you have no interest in men or are not a uh, male identifying or male presenting person yourself and you still found something um worthy um i do think that sex and the fact that i don't i mean i don't i'm trying to think if i do deal with any specific i mean the most explicit sex scenes are in the almodovar chapter right because i talk about that opening scene where it's a young man being sort of encouraged to strip down and then to sort of mock pretend to be fucked and being asked all these things. And it's very explicit. Um, but I think one of the reasons that I shied away from it or not shied away from it, like, but it wasn't sort of the, in the constellation of texts that I wanted to sort of write about um, is because I think the explicitness uh, creates already that kind of audience. Um, but it's funny because one of the, the chapter that I enjoyed writing the most for my dissertation was on John Retchie. And there was no way of writing about John Retchie without grappling with the explicitness of what he's describing. Um, Wait, this actually, is City of Night is one of his I most would, famous books? Yeah, that's his most famous. The, my dissertation focused, oh, I have it right here because it's on my, um, the one that I wrote about for my dissertation and the oh. one that I'm currently, I keep disemboweling bits and pieces for it for my next um, book. It's the, the Sexual Outlaw, a documentary, which is basically, um, three days in Los Angeles in like 1977. And it's, we're following a guy just fucking his way through Los Angeles. Alleys, beaches, piers, orgies, people's rooms. Like it's just, and it's incessant. And that is 75% of the, the novel. I'm adding um, to my list right now. Yeah. And so um, in a way, the my next project almost feels like if I, if I didn't really deal with sex explicitly in the male gaze, like my next one is very much about wanting to sort of think more about the kind of intimacies that we create, sexual intimacies, and sort of it, it'll, if you were wanting more sex, um, you'll be getting more sex. Oh, um, no, no, I that. love this. Because <laughs> oh, this is, in my opinion, when I've read through the male gaze, we're really getting a look into young your whole journey of your phases into um, childhood, adolescence, adulthood of literally what it was like for Manuel Betancourt to see cultural iconography in a way of different arts and culture that spoke to your coming out journey, but also not even just coming out, but what you were gravitating towards and this aesthetic. Yeah. And like, that's what I, you know, getting a little academic, but so many out there, if you haven't, uh, Laura Mulvey coined the female gaze in cinema. And for the longest time during my PhD program, I'm a nine-year PhD, or just so you know, 
<laughs> I own it, that I've always said, well, I would always question in seminars about the female gaze. And I would say, okay, this is very patriarchal in how we're thinking of this in cinema, but where is the writing on the male gaze? How about men who desire men? How about even just when the male body's on display? And there was mm -hmm. never really any conversation around it because there was really no seminal text on the male gaze um, that I had encountered. I mean, we have a lot of queer theory that yeah. we could kind of use and, you know, scissor excerpts <laughs> out. But yeah. that's why I love that you've coined the male gaze. And I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you think about, that's how I use you even in my dissertation. You're a footnote about the erotic male gaze. I say, mm -hmm. if you're interested in how queer men desire other queer men, see Manuel Betancourt's The Male <laughs> Gaze. Like, how do you think of just that concept of men gazing at other men? I mean, it's, it's again, it's a, it's a concept and an idea and a line of thinking that I, it sort of came from the same spot. Cause like, I remember reading Mulvey as an undergrad and then being like, okay, that's, that's great. So long as you're constantly thinking of these like binary, like, and also this idea, like that there's a implicit heterosexuality and heteronormativity to the way that we sometimes understand and sometimes misread that, that essay, which is, which says, you know, men, straight men over here, women, straight women over here object subject yada 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 um and again i'm always i was always more interested in the the destabilizing thing that would happen when it would be men gazing at men who either wanted to be gazed at so those muscle boys in venice they welcome certain gazes otherwise they'd be working out at home otherwise they would be you know not be out for display or those moments when men would gaze at men who wouldn't otherwise be gazed at so something like a locker room where there's an idea and there's a sociability about how you're allowed to present yourself. But if you stand and gaze for too long, then that's a problem. And so um, those are the moments that I was always most interested in exploring because I thought it, it would break away the very neat sort of schematic that Mulvey very helpfully introduced. And I think it's very, has been very productive. Um, What's funny is that Male Gaze was not the original title for this project. The longest time I had a working title that I loved and everyone else <laughs> hated. My, my agent hated it, my editor hated it. Um, uh, my partner at the time hated it. Um, everyone who I've told since do this like, hmm, yes, you chose rightly in, in mixing it. Um, mostly because I didn't want it to sound like I was aping off Mulvey or like I wanted, like I, I it's one of these things like, if you're an academic and you read the male gaze, you immediately go to her, right? Like I, there's no way of doing that. But I also didn't want uh, people who aren't aware of sort of film criticism or film theory, film and career theory uh, to then feel a little lost without the movie. Um, but to me, it's, it's, it's exciting. And that's why I put it in the past tense because I wanted the wordplay. I didn't want to think about the male gaze as a concept. I wanted to think of the male gaze as a positionality and also as a way of looking, right? So I love the, the punning of like, it's both the man who has been gazed, but also the man who has gazed. And so I think that for us queer men, it's it's sort of, that's the destabilizing moment. Cause even when we're in front of a mirror, we're both gazers and gazed. And I think that can sometimes be the most interesting um, moment of, self-evaluation but also and it's again tied to desire like what does it mean for me to look at a male body that looks like but unlike mine 
and what does it mean when I invite that gaze or not welcome that gaze or disavow it? And so um, I think it's a really rich concept. And I hope, I mean, I'm, again, when you say like, there's no, there's no, there's no like seminal text, I think the one person that I would point to is Richard Dyer. Um, whose work on stars and his work, he has a very uh, great essay on pinups. Oh, that actually quote, I think, um, that he is really thinking, I think he's one of the few uh, people that I found that really resonates with me that really is thinking about what is looking at a male pinup. What does it mean to take that photograph? What does it mean to post for that photograph? What is that photograph telling us? Uh, and he was really seminal in sort of my thinking both when I first encountered him and sort of through the years. Yeah, well, and I would also say there's that collection called, um, I always want to say, I think it's Porn Archives, but sure. there's like the queer male porn study. Um, and I would say Thomas Wall, of course, is who I turn to for the cinema of gazing. Right. But like, there's a reason why I think so many of us right now, like you're part of a movement in a way of, I mean, I just finished my whole uh, dissertation on the narcissist myth and male homoeroticism. And I think that there's something in the zeitgeist right now, and I can see it with your work and so many others who I have this pleasure of talking to, that we're really thinking about self-reflection and we're thinking about um, how homoerotic desire is extending outside of just sexual categories. If that yeah. makes sense, like we're not just interested in the naming of categories, but we're interested in how that energy and the desire is happening. And it can even be between straight men. Like you said, it can right. be between yeah. the men who I see at the gym lifting their shirts up to see their abs and they're taking pictures of each other. And I'm thinking, well, that's quite a queer action. I'm encouraging it, but it is like seeing how we're desirous of like you said, when I wear short shorts and I'm running, I do that intentionally. Like, it's not like I think, oh, I'm just going to wear these shorts and people are going to look at my legs. Like, yeah. there's a intentionality. Like, okay, well, I do enjoy showing off my body and working towards my goals of my body. And I know women who are so empowered at the gym. Um, so, yeah, is it how intentional were you? Or are you, I mean, you're working on it right now with your new work, but... I notice even like when you call yourself a queer writer, that's such an intentional act. And it's something that I've even thought about or struggled with. Like, I mean, I call myself an unapologetic gay scholar uh, <laughs> and owns that. But, you know, is there a reason why, you know, a queer Colombian writer, like what does that help you articulate? Yeah, I mean, I I was forged in the embers of queer theory as a as an academic and so to me I don't use that word lightly like I don't I don't deploy that as a kind of like oh I just like this word I I I know the history of the word um and I know the sort of political and radical and post-structuralist and yada 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 sort of history that it has and sort of has a loaded concept and I think to me that again that's that kind of destabilizing force that it has about labels right so that and you know i struggle because i'm like well if i appropriate it as a label am i just you know disempowering of the <laughs> destabilizing power that it has over how we should disavow labels altogether and we can have that conversation it's the kind of conversation only academics would have um but i do i do find it has a little bit more of a friction than the word gay 
And I think part of it comes from, and I talk a little bit about it in the book, is about how I came to these labels and I came to these identities um, through a different language, right? So in, in Spanish, I still struggle with the kinds of words that we use and that we um, have reappropriated and have started deploying um, just because they were never, you know, I talk about them like ill-fitting outfits or ill-fitting robes, uh, as Baldwin would say. Um, and well, queer always felt so empowering. Well, what would be one example in Spanish? Like, how do you say gay for everyone out there? Like, what's the well, common word? Yeah, I mean, and this is where... So the word that's thrown around and that it's both, um, it's been owned, but also used as a slur. So it'd be closer to faggot than gay mm -hmm. uh, would be marica and maricon. Uh, which again, it sort of opens the, the final chapter of my book about how I feel ill at ease using both of those because they, they they were always thrown my way as um, insults and as epithets and sort of like I, I didn't, but I see a lot of like younger and or more proud and more open, you know, Latin men both in the US and abroad using them or using words like loca, which literally means crazy, uh, but it's from the feminized way. So you're always like a crazy woman. Uh, and it was always, again, used as a as a put down um, by straight men. Um, but people have really reclaimed it and said, you know what, I'm going to, that's, that's who I am. Um, but for me, queer, when I came to it, you know, as a 20-something year old and I was in college, it felt really empowering, um, both intellectually and culturally. And so I've always... Um, I've, I've always wanted to sort of tap into. Um, in a way, it's always like, I always want to aspire to be a queer writer. Like that feels like something to aspire to. I don't think like, I, I like to live, I would like to think that my work is queer and that it's radical. And I don't, I would always like it to be more radical, queerer, a little bit more disruptive. But I think thinking of it as, as a kind of horizon and as a kind of aspirational uh, label that I would have to live up to and I would constantly have to be working toward. Um, feels true to how I lead my life and how I'm work, trying to see my my work, my post-academia work. Um, so that's why I've chosen Queer Columbia. And I think it, I, 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 that's why I, I tend to match the two. Because uh, for the longest time, living here in the US, I would be branded as a Latino writer. Um, and I have a very vexed relationship with Latinx or Latine um, as an identity, as a um organizing principle and so eventually I just decided to sort of move away from that and to just then embrace sort of Colombian because I think when people look at me or when people hear me or when people read my read my name it's not something that is immediately um uh apparent and mm -hmm. whenever I want people to sort of know that like it's it's in the book all throughout it's in my bio um because I do one of the things that I'm working on is sort of trying to sort of suture those two halves and they're not two halves of course because they're overlapping but I always want those two things to be top of mind when I'm self-identifying well you know thank you for opening up and being vulnerable about Maracone just because you're now recalling Federico Garcia Lorca there's that poem he has where he references Whitman but he like goes through all the slurs and like tries to reclaim but he's also very messy and there's slippage and he also sometimes seems like he's homophobic with the speaker in the poem i mean lorca had a as you know a varied history and vexed <laughs> yes. history and just even what happened to him in death 
a lot, you know, everyone can look There's into it. There's a lot it. there. Yeah. There's a lot there with Lorca. Um, but like something that I do, like as we're, you know, nearing the end, this is just gone by so quickly as it always does with these conversations. But, you know, I don't want to harp on academia, but I am curious. What I so enjoy with your book is that it's for the public's consumption, where I know that now because I'm looking into publishers with my work, that I always say I want an audiobook and the male gaze, you have an audiobook to plug the audiobook, <laughs> um, a very well done audiobook on Audible. And a lot of academic publishers, they don't have audiobooks. And, you know, the language that you used would have probably had to be more of the, you know, referential academic citations and who you're engaging with. And you don't get that memoirist style all the time, even though there is auto theory in academia. Right. But it just depends so, on yeah yeah it depends on what the press is and maybe it's a crossover press where they're trying to interact with the public um or you're you more know, tenured and therefore can't yeah more tenured <laughs> exactly thinking of even judith butler's auto theory right. that she's been doing um so how important is it or like what has been exciting for you with being with Catapult as a publisher, or even conversations you've had with those from academia? Like, have people reached out and said, wow, this is so exciting that it's there for the public? Like, I see the benefits of this type of style of writing. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E -E, made it or search Mandy made it on Facebook. 
to order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like this was always my, this is basically why I left. One of the reasons why I left academia. There's a litany of reasons. Um, many of which, which I would, I would say was, I just was not well suited to the academic route. Um, but mostly what I, what I told myself those last few years in my um, dissertation writing was that I didn't want to be writing for a limited audience which I think academic writing and academic publishing is very much insular by design, right? I think you can even, I, I'm doing research and I keep running into scholarly articles that I could read if I spend, you know, 400 bucks on like one oh, yeah. scholarly article. Um, so availability and accessibility are, were sort of key to what I wanted to be doing. Um, I don't think I ever imagined that I would write a book that would straddle those two worlds. Um, I think one of the the challenges of the male gaze was I constantly had to be pulling myself in both directions, be like something like, oh no, I need to be more personal. I need to be more accessible. And then part of me was like, no, I need to be like citing more and I need to be arming myself more with these citations. And I need to prove that I read Moldy and I need to show my reader that I've, that I've done that, like that I'm not sort of, I mean, there's a mountain of books and things that I read that didn't make it, but that are sort of, what the book stands on. And usually you can get that in footnotes, you can get that in bibliographies, in academic books. Uh, but obviously I didn't want to saddle my reader with that. And I think Catapult would not have a, would not have agreed to it. But I think they, one of the things that my editor and I talked a lot about was that kind of accessibility, that this was a book that was going to work on a lot of like heady levels, but that we needed to be able to have someone who's not read Mulvey, who's not read Sedgwick, who's not read Halpern, who's not read Dyer, who's not read any of these people, Mm-hmm. just sort of go along this journey with me and it was hard there were times when I, I would write paragraphs and then be like this is a conference paper this is not not working and then I would have to rewrite it or other parts where I was like oh this feels too flippant and this feels too vague I need to be more rigorous and so I'm very heartened when I hear people especially academics say that like that I did that well because it is the thing that I probably struggle with the most and I struggle with the most even now in this new project that I'm working on, it's like, how much do I leave behind that academic voice? Um, and maybe to bring it back to the beginning, it was like that I often say that I, I have a PhD and I don't like to talk about it, but I think it's part of the male gaze was about returning and understanding all the skills that I learned as an academic and all of my research and all of my writing and all of my thinking. Like I couldn't have written this without that eight-year um, grad school period. And so I, for the longest time, I just wanted to leave that behind and say like, I'm not, I'm not an academic. I don't want to do that. I want to write that. I want to write for the New York Times. I want to write for Variety. I want to be on Film Week. Um, but I, it kept pulling me back because I do love this thinking and this like really being in conversation with these really smarter than I folks, which is the thing that I always found myself as an academic thinking it was like, oh my God, I, I'm reading all these amazing, brilliant people. I just need to 
you know, hold a candle to them. And I, I, I'm always very self-deprecating about my writing in that way. But I think, uh, and I think it's what didn't make me a great academic because I wasn't as boisterous and I wasn't as grandiose and I wasn't as, I had very, very my, my dissertation director said I had very modest goals <laughs> and I had a very modest sort of way of thinking. And I think it's, it's because I always enjoyed that those close reading and I always wanted to stay sort of with the text and with myself. And I think with the male gaze, I was able to then through that to be very specific about myself to then move out. And I think that was always what I struggled with in grad school is like with that moving out and the zooming out and the like really thinking in broad strokes. Um, so I'm basically what I'm saying is this book made me a better academic than I thought I could ever be. And it's weird that it's not an academic book. <laughs> but no, maybe it's it, so, it but it's, so re it's so refreshing. And wait, do you have another 10 minutes, Manuel? <laughs> okay, just want to make sure I'm very cautious of, Conscious, cautious. I could be con cautious too, cautious but conscious that. of time. But it's like, I'm not sure. I mean, Zachary Zane, again, these are people that I've gotten to interact with. So like, that's why I mentioned them. So if you're out there listening and I don't mention your name, reach <laughs> out to me to be on the ivory tower boiler room. Uh, but cause it's just like in the front of my mind, but yeah. boy, slut, again, like just these in academia, I keep having these conversations, Manuel, on this podcast, when, especially when it's someone who is tenured. Like I have this conversation with Tim Dean about, could you have written unlimited intimacy about barebacking right now in 2023? Because those books yeah. are being written in pop culture. They're being written for the public, but they're not being done in academia. Like it's, I feel there's this the wires are crossing each other. Yeah. But then academics are now reaching out to me saying, Andrew, please help consult with me so you can help me create a podcast. And it's like, wait, so now academics are trying to become public and in the media. Right. And it's, um, it's a very interesting time. It's why I kind of see myself on a cliff right now, but I hope like I'm not jumping off the cliff. I'm flying over it like Superman, I hope, where I can be part of both worlds. But I still mm -hmm. think, I hope that academia can have more, um, straddle positions, like contingent positions where you can be in media, but also work at the university. But I feel that our workplace design is still stuck on, you can either be in freelance or right. in academia, not, yeah. right. Never the we'll spatial see. means, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I will say adjuncting, you definitely can straddle, um, but that's a whole other conversation <laughs> about academia, um, adjuncting and, yes. and labor exploitation and all of that. Um, but like, what I love is I use your work. I use so many who would be quote unquote, um, you know, writers for the public, not public, but I mean, how would you describe it? Like there's academic writing and then there's pop culture writing. I don't even. Yeah. I mean, if we're thinking publishing, it's like trade publishing and academic publishing. I think that would be the sort of main distinction. I right? like selling an academic book is very different than selling a trade book. Um, it has a very different schedule. It has a very different um, sort of publishing pipeline. Um, like this, I wrote on proposal. Like it was, it was sold on proposal and then I wrote it, which is sort of the opposite of what you do with both a novel, but also an academic book, which is like you write it and then you try to sell it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think, again, if we're thinking about it in terms of intended audience, I think that's where the difference lies. Because an academic, I can sit in my computer for a few months or years and know that my audience is not going to change and know my audience because I teach my audience. I talk through conferences in my, to my audience. I like, I know them. I know their 
dissertation directors or I know like, and I know that, whereas at a trade, you're sort of, it's this illusory mainstream, but also public, but also maybe not sort of, it's, it's a little bit more amorphous. Um, but, it, and it's in a way harder to write toward, but. Yeah, but then you it. have like such exciting work. Like I know um, even Emily Rajakowski to like bring her name up or Paris Hilton, how her memoir made a splash. Like it is so interesting to me, you know, how then in academia you'll have the feminist arguments of Paris Hilton. And then like, they will look to the trade books. Like there's a whole community of then, as you know, Manuel, it takes time for the trade books to then make their way into academia and yeah. like the nuanced conversations to happen. But I mean, I've even had some who asked me why my dissertation is called kind of like, I mean, on a smaller scale, my example, but with the male gaze, they'll ask me, oh, it's called the pool of Narcissus, but you don't talk about, you don't argue that Whitman sees Narcissus, like actually uses Narcissus in his poetry. And I said, no, because it's a metaphor. It's a lens. It's a way to get into his homoeroticism. It's provocative. Mm -hmm. And I think in academia, like that's that traditional question of, but you didn't argue it in every chapter. Right. And it would kind of be asking, well, why isn't the male gaze a theory that Manuel asks in every chapter? Right. And it's like, because it's not for that audience. Like, it's a different audience. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I understand. I'm trying to straddle right now trade and academic. And hopefully there's an in-between, in-betweener. Um, but, you know, as we end... All of this has been very helpful, just even for my thought process. Um, and I'm sure so many listening right now who've recently gotten their PhD. It is um, so many of us are going into more media positions or freelance just because of the reality. Um, but let's say that's a, not to cause existential questions <laughs> happening right now. Um, but, you know, what are you since you do so much with Film Quarterly and you know, everything that you're absorbing right now in pop culture. Is there any, especially queer uh, stories that you're just excited for? Like anything in TV, film, like what's, what can we anticipate happening yeah. soon? I mean, I feel everyone should be watching Passages. Uh, Iris Sachs' latest film, it's hard to spin with Shaw. Um, I think it's one of my, it's my, it's my favorite film of the year. Um, I won't spoil too much, but it's about a gay male couple who becomes sort of entangled with a woman. And there's this sort of really weird triangular triangle of desire, but it's really, really well done. Um, the other one to look forward to in the next few months, it's called Cassandro talking about wrestling. It's about a professional, it's about Mexico's, uh, gay professional wrestling icon named Cassandro. Like it's a biopic. It's with Gael Garcia Bernal. Uh, and it's, it's again, for someone who's interested in sort of how that masculinity and then machismo and homophobia are sort of playing um, together. It's a, it's a fabulous film. Um, and in the realm of TV, I will continue to uh, recommend these two uh, series because I've been doing it for years, but I feel like not enough people are watching them. One is called Sort Of. Uh, it's on HBO Max, and it's Canadian uh, sitcom about a non-binary um, millennial, and it is one of the funniest things that I've watched. It just got two seasons. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. It has this like really droll sense of humor, 
And the other one is uh, Veneno, which is a Spanish series about this uh, trans sex worker icon from the 90s. Again, it's another sort of uh, miniseries long project, um, which is a fantastic uh, sort of examination of like 90s era um, exploitation of this uh, trans icon um, who you know passed away too soon. But it's, it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous, fabulous series. Well, I'm going to be looking out for all of these recommendations, you know, following your website, following, um, you know, Film Week and what you do with Film film Quarterly, right? That's the mm-hmm. other outlet, um, maybe on your social media. But I am starting a, for everyone here, because it's probably going to happen soon once this is released, I'm going to start re-watching queer TV shows um, or things that are queer coded. So the first one, of course... In my opinion, not of course, but what I was drawn to was Queer as Folk, the American, mm-hmm. the American. TV series. Um, not the British, even though I'm sh- sure it's wonderful. Um, but I'm going to start re-watching it and have a different guest co-host on each time we look at an episode. So you're invited to do that, Manuel, later as we're into season one. Am I going um, to revisit Brian and Justin? Yes. Sign me. Yes. Sign me up. Well, Revisit and all the problematics. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. sure. But I'm like, I'm thinking queer folk first and then maybe Desperate Housewives next, just because I want to rewatch, especially the Andrew storyline. Maybe that's a little narcissistic. But <laughs> that character <laughs> was wild. Um, but no, there's so much Tales of the City. I loved mm-hmm. that new seat, the new um the new the spin-off. Revival. Yeah. Yes, yes. But there's so many, I feel that we well. Also, you know, solidarity to the actors. Let's just say, I think because of the writer's strike, there's going to be a lot of rewatching. Yes, um, absolutely. So, you know, anyone who wants to come on and rewatch or suggest a show for me to rewatch, um, you gave us some great uh, examples, Manuel. So with all that, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to actually meet you and have this conversation. Um, everyone out there, please get your hands on the male gazed or, you know, listen to it, uh, during your workouts, your physique workouts. Um, <laughs> and please follow Manuel. I have all his social media uh, listed in the show notes. I know your Instagram X, which mm, I still am mm, getting used yeah. to. I'm like, <laughs> does that mean that we can be even more explicit? I'm not sure if it goes that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I don't think you have a TikTok, but maybe eventually yeah. we'll get you to do one. <laughs> we'll get it. I'm getting everyone on TikTok and then they'll probably take it down. Uh, I know. But no, thank you so much, Manuel. This has been wonderful. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, this was delightful. Yes, thank you. Okay, and everyone out there, yeah, please send me recommendations. I need <laughs> more rewatch recommendations. Okay, thanks, Manuel. And bye everyone out there. <laughs> So right when I stopped the recording with Manuel, I realized I never actually asked him about his iconic work on Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. So I have an extra bonus audio slash video on the Patreon. So if you are an ITBR student member of our Patreon, it is $5 a month, you can listen to my discussion with Manuel on his Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall book. So head on over to patreon.com backslash ivory tower boiler room.
Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.